We're here in Mark's Gospel, chapter 4. I'm going to read the first nine verses. Mark chapter 4, and starting at verse 1. And again he began to teach by the sea, that is Jesus. And a great multitude was gathered to him, so that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea. And the whole multitude was on the land facing the sea. And then he taught them many things by parables and said to them in his teaching, Listen, behold, a sower went out to sow. And it happened as he sowed that some seed fell by the wayside, and the birds of the air came and devoured it. And some fell on stony ground, where it did not have much earth, and immediately it sprung up because it had no depth of earth. But when the sun was up, it was scorched, and because it had no root, it withered away. And some seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no crop. But other seed fell on good ground and yielded a crop that sprang up, increased, and produced, some thirtyfold, some sixty, and some a hundred. And he said to them, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Let's pause there and pray. Father, in the same way, we pray that we would have ears to hear what you would say to us today through this passage, and that the words of Jesus would be true today as much as they were true on the day that he spoke them, and that we would take to heart these things and learn and do what you say. So we thank you for this time we have together. We just worship you and exalt you, and we glorify you. Use your word now to strengthen us, we pray in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. Well, the location of our story is the Sea of Galilee. It doesn't tell us specifically where, but more than likely, it's on the shoreline of the city of Capernaum. That's where Jesus' home base of ministry was for three years. Uh, In the scene, it tells us here in what we just read that a great multitude of people have come to see Jesus and to hear him. And so in order not to be crushed by the crowd, Jesus gets in a boat, pushes off just a little distance from the coast, and he begins to teach the people who were standing on the land facing the water where Jesus was seated in a boat. And the water also served not just to create a little safe distance between himself and the crowd, but also as a natural amplification for his voice, as his voice would bounce off the water and the crowd could hear him better. And um, he teaches what is commonly referred to here in our Bibles, what I just read, the parable of the sower. Now, we've talked about what parables are many times, but for those of you who are new to it, a parable is basically a a story drawn from everyday life to illustrate a deeper truth. And Jesus often employed parables to help communicate a deeper spiritual truth. The point was not always obvious up front. It required his listeners, or in our case, his readers, to try to understand the deep implication of what he's talking about here. And when you look at this parable with me, there are three elements, three primary elements. We have a sower, some translations say a farmer, one who casts the seed. We have the seed itself, and we have soil. And there is one sower in this parable, there is one type of seed, but there are four different types of soil. And so I'll list them for you on the screen. It tells us some soil was by the wayside, or some translations say along the path. That's verse 4. Some of the soil was on stony ground or rocky places, some translations say. Uh, Some of the soil was among thorns. That's verse 7. And some of the soil was good ground, or some translations say good soil. That's verse 8. 
And as a result of these various types of soil, some of the seed amounted to nothing, depending on where it landed, and some of the seed produced a great harvest in varying amounts, by the way. Now, it tells us further, past what I read earlier in verse 10, if you glance at verse 10, it tells us that some people got Jesus alone privately and asked him questions about this parable, because again, it's sometimes confusing. And so some people were able to get him to the side and say, you know, Jesus, what, what, is, what are you talking about here? So verse 10 says, but when he was alone, those around him with the 12, his own disciples, they weren't always the sharpest knife in the drawer, I can relate, all right? with the twelve, asked him about the parable. So they start probing him. Well, what does this mean? Now, had I been there in that day, I would have had a question. Because when I read this parable, this is where I get stuck, and this is just my learning style. You know, I apologize. But like when I was in college, I had a professor with a really long beard, and as he was talking, he would stroke it like this. And as he was stroking it, I was wondering, what lives in there? Like, is a squirrel going to jump out at some moment? Or and, I, and I lost track of what he was saying. So that's the kind of guy I am. So I would have been like, Jesus, Jesus, I have a question. I have a question. So what's the deal with the farmer? Why isn't he more careful? You know, it just seems like a haphazard. He's just like, Voo, you know, Voo. and some of it lands on thorny ground and some of it on stony ground and some of it on the path. Like, what's the deal with the farmer? Is this angry farmer? Angry farmer? He's like, I don't care. Is he a drunk farmer? Like, had too much sauce and he's just like, can't seem to lay the seed in a straight row? And of course, Jesus would have answered me, oy vey. You know, I just, you are missing the point and you want to be a pastor. That's what he would have said to me. But Jesus tells us the point, because this is one of the few parables that Jesus actually explains for us, and I'm thankful that he does. We can't get tripped up on some of the details, because some of it is not really the point of the matter. And so, between verses 13 and 20, he explains what the whole parable means. So that's helpful to people like me. But before we read those verses and dive into what the parable means, let me first say this. This is a parable, the parable of the sower that a lot of Christians read, and then they try to determine what soil are they. And it causes angst among some people who read this parable and then try to think, am I the good soil? Am I producing fruit? Because if I'm not, am I thorny soil? Am I, th- am, I, am I stony soil? Am I soil along the path? What kind of soil am I? Am I even really saved? You know, that's what happens with people. They start to read this. And if you don't think that about yourself, you start to think that about other people, don't you? You're like, there's a thorny Christian right there. I don't even know that person's saved. Who do they think they are? They're not showing much fruit, you know, and then we become fruit inspectors, right? Okay. So don't, like, don't wig out about this parable here, because I'll be frank with you. I don't believe this parable is about who is saved and who isn't saved, although there is an element of salvation in this parable, and I'll touch on it when we get to it. But I think more so this parable is about who is fruitful and who is not, and more importantly, what hinders fruitfulness in the life of the believer. That's really the heart of the story here. Now, when I say fruitfulness, what am I talking about? Uh, When we talk about being fruitful as Christians, what we mean is, do we exemplify the characteristics, the qualities, and the virtues of Jesus more and more in our lives? That's fruitfulness. Fruitfulness. 
And the implication in that, when we talk about being more fruitful, that is to bear more witness to the characteristics, qualities, and virtues of Jesus, the implication is that at the same time we're dying to self. We're dying to our own attitudes. We're crucifying the flesh more and more so that it's less of us and more of Jesus, and that that becomes more exemplary, more noticed in our lives, the qualities, the characteristics, and the virtues of Jesus. That's what we mean by fruitfulness. And Jesus calls us to be fruitful. In John chapter 15, verse 8, Jesus says, By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so you will be my disciples. He calls us to be fruitful. Now, don't let that concern you either. What, what does that mean? And like, how can I be fruitful? And what constitutes fruitfulness? Because Jesus also tells us in John's gospel, chapter 15, that if you're connected to him, if you have relationship and fellowship with him, you will naturally bear fruit. In the same way that a branch connected to a vine in a vineyard will naturally bear grapes just by virtue of the fact that it is connected to the vine. And Jesus uses that language in John 15, verse 5. Listen, he says, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me, okay, has relationship with me, fellowship with me, and I in him bears much fruit. So it will be as natural to bear fruit for Jesus in a relationship with him as it is to be a branch connected to a vine and bear grapes. It's just a natural thing. So don't let this become some kind of works-oriented thought where the parable of the sower means I got to do this, I got to do that, I got to perform this way, I got to work that way in order to show myself bearing fruit that I belong to Jesus. It will happen naturally. The key is you abide in him, he and you, you have that close relationship, then you will bear much fruit. So keep that in mind as we read the explanation, because then Jesus says to us, okay, here's what I was talking about. Look at your Bibles, verses 13 to 20, still there in chapter four, verses 13 to 20. And he said to them, do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? I mean, I like that. Like, if you don't get this, you're going to be lost with the rest of them. He says in verse 14, the sower sows the word. Notice. And these, first group, these are the ones by the wayside where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan comes immediately and takes away the word that was sown in their hearts. That's the first group, the first soil. Verse 16, second soil. These, likewise, are the ones sown on stony ground who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with gladness, and then they have no root in themselves and so endure only for a time. Afterward, when tribulation or persecution arises for the word's sake, immediately they stumble. Third group, third type of soil, verse 18. Now these are the ones sown among thorns. They are the ones who hear the word and the cares of this world the deceitfulness of riches, and the desires for other things entering in choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. But these are the ones, this is the last group, this is the one that you want to be, verse 20, but these are the ones sown on good ground, those who hear the word, accept it, and bear fruit, some 30-fold, some 60, and some 100. So when he explains it, we, we get some clarity here, don't we? And, and this much is clear. The first thing is the seed in the parable is a picture of the Word of God. He says it right there uh, in verse, in verse uh, 14, the sower sows the Word. 
So the seed is a picture of the word. In other words, the gospel, the good news of Jesus, the Bible, the truth of God's word. That's the seed. The sower is anyone who spreads that good news, who shares that good news. And it isn't just restricted to like professional clergy. This is any of us, as we share the good news, the gospel of Jesus, we're, we're sowing seed. We're sowing the word of God. We're scattering it. And then he mentions here about the soils. And what we begin to realize is that the soils represent different conditions of how the gospel is received and believed by people which contributes to the fruitfulness of that individual or the lack thereof. But please notice that the condition of the soil is not the only thing that determines fruitfulness. That might be where it all begins, but that's not the only thing. And why do I say this? Think about it in in the natural terms. Those of you who still live mainly in Western Loudoun, maybe farming is still a a thing that that you do and you understand uh, better than most of us. But, but, you know, any of us can understand that there are some elements necessary in in a proper uh, production of a crop and the fruitfulness of that crop. The soil is just one component. It has to be good soil. But what about also other elements like it has to be the right temperature? If it's too cold, if it's too hot, that affects the crop. Uh, The right moisture, rainfall, sunshine. You try to grow a crop in the shade, good luck, it won't be as fruitful. And then there are other other elements that also uh, don't contribute to the growth of the crop, but hinder the the crops like insects, pestilence, uh, fungus. Those are all elements that all together impact the fruitfulness of, Uh, of that crop. And in other words, when you look at the natural world and the spiritual world, because he's talking about this in spiritual terms, in in nature, there's a delicate balance and there's a delicate balance in our spiritual lives that determines fruitfulness. And what Jesus is teaching here is that just like in nature, there are some things in our lives that can upset that delicate balance of being fruitful for Jesus. And so this is why I believe Jesus emphasizes different aspects or elements that can hinder fruitfulness. For example, he mentions in verse 4 in the, in the parable about birds. Birds are the enemies of fruitfulness because they're going to come and snatch the seed before it can even grow. He talks in verse 6 about scorching sun. The intensity of the heat uh, can affect fruitfulness. He mentions in verse 7 about thorns choking out fruitfulness. And we would say maybe thistles or, or weeds. All those things can impact the fruitfulness of a crop. And so Jesus is translating modern everyday terms into the spiritual life of a believer and says, listen, if you want to be fruitful for me, you have to be aware of certain things, certain elements that are going to assault your desire to be fruitful for me. This is what he's focusing on here with us. And and this is the angle that we're going to take in our Bible study. So I'm going to share three things from what he unpacks for us, three things that hinder our fruitfulness for Jesus. And the first uh, soil that he mentions, the first group, is soil that is and seed that is thrown by the wayside. That's that's verse four again. And he tells us in, in the original part of the parable that birds come, the enemy of the seed, and birds come and snatch the seed. They eat it, they devour it, and, and there's no fruitfulness. And then when Jesus explains it in verse 15, he helps us to understand that the birds were symbolic of Satan himself. 
And he says in verse 15, and these are the ones, by the wayside, where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan comes immediately and takes away the word that was sown in their hearts. And so the first thing that hinders fruitfulness are satanic schemes. Satan is actively at work trying to hinder your fruitfulness for Jesus. He is. Now, arguably, this first example seems to be a commentary on salvation more than just fruitfulness, because when, when you read Luke's account of this parable, when Luke quotes Jesus in Luke 8.12, he's a little more explicit in the wording. Listen to what Luke says in Luke 8.12. Those by the wayside are the, are the ones who hear. Then the devil comes and takes away the word out of their hearts, lest they should believe and be saved. So what Luke helps us to understand when you compare his gospel with what Mark writes is, is that Satan is actively at work trying to prevent you from even becoming a believer in Jesus in the first place. So there is an element of salvation to this parable, but even still, it is fair to say that in Satan's attempt to prevent you from ever being a believer... Or in the fact that after you become a believer, he's still at work to try to make you unfruitful. The end result is the same. He doesn't want anyone to be fruitful for Jesus, either by preventing you from getting saved or discouraging you after you are saved. He is at work trying to prevent you from being fruitful to Jesus. And the Bible tells us in 2 Corinthians 4, 4, Paul would write the God of this age, small g, referring to Satan, has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. That's how much Satan is at work, trying to blind people who are unbelievers to the truth, lying to them, telling them that don't believe this, this is baloney, this is bunk, you know, all paths lead to God, all this kind of nonsense. That's what he's whispering. And again, even if he isn't successful in preventing you from becoming a believer, He will still work hard at doing everything he can to prevent you from being fruitful to Jesus. And and let me tell you how he typically will work. Through discouraging, tempting, accusing, and lying to you. That's the way he works. Discouraging you, tempting you, accusing you, and lying to you. Now look. Some people want to dismiss Satan as a, fig, as a figment of our imagination, that he isn't really real, and, and, uh, or he's just a fictitious you know, character in Hollywood movies. Let me tell you something. He's neither. He's neither fictitious, nor is he just this figment of our imagination. He is a fallen angel of the highest order who one time, a long time ago, led an attempted coup in heaven because he wanted to ascend to the throne of God. And he managed to persuade a third of the angels with him who rebelled with him against God. God expelled them all from heaven, cast them out of heaven. And those fallen angels who rebelled with Satan are now known as demons. And they are in the unseen realm. But they are actively involved in trying to dissuade you from even being a believer or discouraging you, tempting you, accusing you, or lying to you in order to prevent you from being fruitful for Jesus. This is why Paul would write in Ephesians chapter 6, Be strong in the Lord and in His mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. 
For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world. He's talking about spiritual beings in the dark world, in the unseen realm, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. We need to get this. If you don't first begin with believing the reality of Satan and demonic warfare, you will be the first prey. If you're not wise to this and understand how he operates, you're exactly the kind of person he's going to go for. So we need to get this. We need to be on our guard. We need to put on the full armor of Christ. We need to understand that our strength is in the Lord because Satan is real, demonic warfare is real, and he wants to do everything he can to hinder you in your walk with the Lord. Just by virtue of a little background on Satan himself, he is called the tempter in Matthew 4.3. He is called the accuser in Revelation 12.10. In John 8.44, Jesus calls him a murderer, calls him a liar, and calls him the father of lies. His name Satan is spelled the same in Hebrew, Satan, and it translates enemy or adversary. He is also in the New Testament in the Greek, the devil. He's called the devil, and it's diabolos in the Greek, meaning accuser. And in Revelation 12, 9, he's called the dragon, he's called that ancient serpent, and he's called the one who deceives the whole world. He first appears in the Bible in Genesis 3, 1 as a serpent who successfully tempted Adam and Eve. He last appears in the Bible in Revelation 20, 10, where sometime in the future he will be cast into the lake of fire and tormented forever and ever. For now, we have to contend with him. And listen to me on this, he fights on the battleground of your mind. He whispers lying thoughts, accusing thoughts, discouraging thoughts, tempting thoughts. He wants to get in your head. And 2 Corinthians 10, 3-5 tells us, For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary... They have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. That is 2 Corinthians 10, verse 5. And this is what we need to be doing. Because Satan will try to lob every discouraging thought, every lying thought, every tempting thought, every accusing thought, and you have to take it captive. You have to take it captive because he's going to constantly be doing this to you, lying to you, trying to convince you, don't get saved. And if you do get saved, trying to convince you, you're not really saved. Lying to you that you're not loved, that you don't have what it takes, that you're better off dead, that you're ugly, that you're stupid, that you're not the biological gender of your birth, that things are hopeless, that she would be a better wife than the one you have, that he would be a better husband than the one you have, that just one more drink or one more hit will make everything better, and on and on the lies go one after another. Every way Satan can try to get in your head, he will. Know what he is about, understand and recognize when he's doing it, and then take captive every thought in the name of Jesus. That's what we need to be about. We, we, We have to be wise to this kind of thing, friends. We have to be wise to this kind of thing. And when you realize this is a thought that's not of the Lord, this is just, this is right from the pit of hell, then this is, this is the simple prayer. Not today, Satan. 
All right? That's the way you start. Not today, Satan. And then this, this simple prayer. This, wait, this simple prayer. Just, Lord, I know that thought is not of you. I take captive every thought in Jesus' name, and I pray that you would replace that thought with your righteousness and peace in my mind. Pray that. And a challenge to the husbands. Pray for your wife's, your wife's thought, life, her mind. Pray for her. Satan first went after Eve in the garden to deceive her in her mind that God was not good and that God was holding back his best. He went for the woman first. Meanwhile, Adam passively stood by and did nothing. He should have stepped in. He should have stepped in to protect his wife. He should have taken his wife's face in his hands and said, look at me, look away from him. Don't look at him. God loves you. He loves me. He wants his best for you and me. Don't rob yourself of God's best by believing this liar. That's what he should have done. He didn't step in. Husbands, we need to step in and pray for our wives, their minds, their thoughts. There's an Eve factor here. Now, let me make it clear. Men are just as susceptible to believing lies too. But women are particularly vulnerable and husbands can be that prayer covering for them and dads for their daughters. I don't say that to be patronizing. I say that to be protecting. And if any of you are offended by that, then fine. Nobody has to pray for you. Good luck. (laughs) Because this is serious stuff. Truth is, I compliment you ladies because truth is, generally speaking, you are more trusting. It is the reason why there are more women who are believers in Jesus than men. Women outpace men in every category in terms of faith. Did you know that? More women attend church. More women are involved in Bible studies. More women report regular Bible reading. More women report regular prayer times. More women report believing the fundamental doctrines of the faith than do men on every level. So I say it as a complimentary thing because you ladies are generally more trusting, but that can also be your Achilles heel. And therefore, men need to step up and be a prayer covering for their wives and for their daughters and pray. Again, I've believed my share of lies too. Men have to take captive every thought and make it obedient to Christ too. But husbands also need to step up and be a prayer covering for their wives. And if you ladies, or for that matter guys too, if you're single, then find a prayer partner and ask someone who will regularly pray over your thoughts and over your minds because I'm telling you it is the devil's battleground. It is the devil's battleground. And the bottom line is he does not want you to be fruitful for Christ. And so he works hard to prevent you from coming into relationship with Christ. And he works hard to discourage you after you come into relationship with Christ. So take captive every thought and make it obedient to Christ and be fruitful for him. Now I got two more points. And if you're looking at your watches, how's he going to get through the next two? 
They're not as long as the first point, so relax. But the second point has to do with the second group, soil on stony ground. Seed is is cast on stony ground. Look at what Jesus says, verse 16 and 17. These likewise are the ones sown on stony ground who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with gladness, and they have no root in themselves, and so endure only for a time. Afterward, notice, when tribulation or persecution arises, specifically for the word's sake, immediately they stumble. So the second thing that hinders fruitfulness is personal persecution. And not just a garden variety type, but a specific kind. Jesus says, when you're persecuted for your faith, for the sake of the word, for the gospel, for the good news, when you're persecuted for your faith, it tends to make a person less fruitful because we get discouraged, we get weighed down, we get attacked, you know, we get, we get frustrated by, by the, the things that people might do to us. Now, Again, this is persecution directed at you for your faith, and it's only getting worse in our culture. It's only getting worse. I read an article at beliefnet.com, and they had an article, Is There Persecution in America? Because we're all aware, I hope we are, that as Americans, we have it really, really good compared to a lot of Christians in the rest of the world who are actually dying for their faith. But Beliefnet ran this article, Is There Persecution in America? And I think this is valid, too, that we need to be wise to. This is what it said, quote, Christian persecution is happening right here at home on our own soil. Many here are attacked for their faith, too. While it might not be at the level of beheadings or burned down churches as seen in other places of the world, it still is a problem that is growing. Traditional Christians are facing increasing intolerance in this country through the fines, the lawsuits, the jobs lost, and the public disdain felt, end quote. And that's all true. And the article goes on to talk about persecution in politics, persecution on college campuses, persecution in public schools, persecution in businesses. I mean, think just of late. You you have a a Christian cake baker who uh, gets sued because he doesn't want to bake a cake for a same-sex marriage. You have a photographer, a wedding photographer. This is a case in our own congregation. A guy gets sued, doesn't want to take pictures for a same-sex marriage. And so gets sued for that. You have an organization, a business like Hobby Lobby. They're not going to pay for Obamacare because in there it has abortifacient drugs. It's against the Green family's personal Christian convictions. They're not going to pay for it. That had to go all the way up to the Supreme Court to get a narrow majority ruling in their favor. This is the kind of persecution that Christians are facing, the reality of our culture. The Equality Act right now, banging on the door, the front door, and its implication is devastating for churches and Christian schools and Christian organizations. The government telling churches, you have to limit the size of your worship services. Excuse me? Have you been on an airplane lately? (laughs) That's religious persecution as far as I'm concerned. You're telling churches that you have to limit attendance, or in some cases, you have to shut down completely because of a pandemic that the CDC's own numbers say that in the United States, 98% recovery rate. What? And so when you look at the whole airport deal, isn't it crazy how in the airport you have to social distance by six feet, but in the airplane you can rub shoulders with strangers, crammed together like sardines? This inconsistency is ridiculous. And whether or not it's intentional, I don't know. But the target is the church. 
Because to limit the freedom of worship guaranteed by our Constitution's First Amendment, the overreach of government is infringing upon Christians' rights. That's true. The the former Solicitor General of the United States and former Circuit Court Judge Ken Starr, those of you old enough may remember, Ken Starr was also appointed as the special um, independent counsel for the Whitewater investigation that led ultimately to the impeachment of former President Bill Clinton. Ken Starr, Judge Starr, wrote a book recently, just was published uh, last week, Religious Liberty in Crisis, Exercising Your Faith in an Age of Uncertainty. And he documents, so this is just not made up like, oh, we're victims. No, he documents how religious liberties are being threatened. And by the way, I've been having conversation with Judge Starr. He's going to be our special guest on Wednesday night, June the 16th, and talk about this very issue. So that's our Wednesday night service, June the 16th, with Judge Ken Starr. Mark it down. You're going to want to be with us. He's going to be here. But listen, there's this concerted effort to intimidate Christians and to marginalize Christians, and to discredit Christians. And when you feel that persecution for your faith, when the heat gets, you know, scorching, so to speak, and then it causes you to wither and not to be fruitful. That's the illustration in the parable. But we have to be mindful of the fact that Jesus said in Matthew 10, 22, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but he who endures to the end will be saved. It's to be expected. Don't let it make you less fruitful for Jesus. Be courageous, be bold. You don't need to be abrasive, but just be courageous and bold about your faith in Jesus. Be fruitful for him and don't kowtow to personal persecution. The last group, real quickly, he talks about soil and seed among thorns. And he unpacks it for us in verses 18 and 19. He says, now these are the ones sown among thorns. They are the ones who hear the word and the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things entering in choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. And so he tells us that the thorns really represent all these different desires of the world that will hinder fruitfulness, worldly uh, wants. Now, look, we have to live in this world, but we can't allow the pull of this world to choke out our lives for Jesus, where we become more consumed with treasures and possessions and ambitions and pleasures more than living a fruitful life for Christ. It's very easy to start living for the horizontal and losing sight of the vertical, getting all caught up in the world and life and worrying about money and the future and all these things that begin to weigh on our minds and in our hearts. And we just need to step back and to realize that we live in the world, but we can't allow the pull of the world to choke out our fruitfulness. We have to be more devoted to Jesus than we are to the things of this world. And Jesus reminds us in Matthew 6, therefore do not worry saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For after all these things the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. And then the next verse, Matthew six thirty three. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. And Jesus ends this whole parable there in verse 20, reminding us again, 
that these are the ones, this is the optimal place to be. These are the ones sown on good ground, those who hear the word, accept it, and bear fruit, some 30-fold, some 60, and some 100. In other words, notice he even says here that most, the most fruitful people among us still will vary in their fruitfulness. There's not one, like, what constitutes being really fruitful for Jesus? Jesus says, listen, it varies, 30-fold, 60-fold, 100-fold. The main point is stay connected to Jesus, stay in fellowship and relationship with Jesus, and you will naturally produce fruit. Don't let these things hinder you from being fruitful for Jesus. Amen? Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this time in your word, and thank you, Lord, for this parable that would remind us that there are things that try to assault us in, in, in our walk with you, Satan's schemes, um, the personal persecution, anti-Christian stuff in this world, and the world itself is often pulling at us, trying to win our affection and devotion, to steal us away from you. But we're wise about these things now, Lord. And we thank you for your word that instructs us in this way. That we would be on our guard about the things that hinder our fruitfulness and that we instead would be men and women and young people who live our lives in such a way that we glorify you by bearing much fruit. So we thank you, Lord, for your goodness and your grace. And we pray that each of us would live out our lives to the fullest, that we would bear much fruit for you. Your characteristics, your qualities, your virtues on display in our lives. In Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen and amen. God bless you all.